What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead of us this hour. The meme stocks are back, and crypto is rebounding today, too. Is there a way to play the space without all the volatility? We look at companies that mine Bitcoin and speak with an analyst who says one of his picks could rally more than 80%. Speaking of crypto, hundreds of smaller banks are now offering clients access to it, while the big banks, as they reminded us in testimony today... Well, they are a little bit softer on crypto. Maybe they're falling behind. When will they catch up? And are you better off betting on the regionals right now? And the inflation debate gets political. We've got the very latest. But we start with the markets. As always, Dom Chu is here with the numbers for us. All right. So, Kelly, we are just about at or near session highs. Now, it might seem modest because it is. The Dow Industrials, the S&P and the Nasdaq up just fractionally. But we are trying to move back towards some of those record highs that we've seen. Just for reference, for the Dow Industrials, we are now down roughly 2% from the record intraday highs. The S&P 500 at 4,200 is down roughly 1%, maybe even a little bit less from its record highs. And the Nasdaq is down roughly 3% from its own historic levels as well. So kind of some context for where we are overall in the marketplace right now. Uh, One place to watch now is the third update in a row for the building stocks, as represented by the iShares Dow Jones Home Construction ETF. The ticker is ITB. It's up 1.5%. We got some housing kind of related data, mortgage application data out this morning. Still, though, we're down about 9% from the record highs that we've seen earlier this past year. But again, third update in a row here and third or uh, three out of the last four days we've been higher here for sure so take a look at those names of a nice little win streak coming for the uh, home construction stocks and then one other place to keep an eye on is nvidia why because it is a mega cap technology stock one of the biggest semiconductor makers in the world but also because it reports earnings later on this afternoon it's just fractionally higher right now but an outperformer it's up 20 percent year to date the s&p 500 tech sector kelly is up six percent And just for some indication on just how volatile it could be, the options market currently is pricing in what could be a three and a half to four percent move up or down in that stock after earnings. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Can't wait uh, to see what they say. Dom, thank you very much. Remember GameStop and AMC, the massive rally from earlier this year? Well, it's finding its legs again with both so-called meme stocks up double digits today. 11% for GameStop, 14% for AMC. AMC is almost a $19 equity. It's highest level since January when it closed just shy of 20 bucks a share. Let's get out to Kate Rooney with a closer look at why the revival is happening today, Kate, what the Reddit trade or crypto might be having to do with it. Hey, Kelly, those meme stocks are certainly back, and so are some of the more speculative crypto trades this week. We have uh, GameStop, like you mentioned, AMC as well, seeing some double-digit rallies as chatter about them picks up on social media. GameStop has been up it's about, wow, 11% today. Uh, it was That brings the week-to-date gains to almost 40%. AMC, meanwhile, is on track. It had been on track earlier for about uh, 50% gains for the week. And just last week, GameStop was still one of the most talked about tickers, but it had fewer than 800 mentions on Reddit. This morning, though, GameStop has over 2,000 unique mentions. That's according 
to data firm Quiver Quantitative. So why is Reddit so fired up today? One of the big reasons, NFTs. GameStop launched a new website yesterday under the domain name nft.gamestop.com, hinting a move into digital collectibles in that whole arena. It also says it's hiring engineers for an NFT division. We saw a broader sell-off in those meme stocks last week, as well as a lot of cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, though, today is recovering a little bit from that crash, uh, down to 30,000 that we saw last week. Bitcoin is back to almost 40,000 today. It's around 38,000 right now. Once again, a big driver here, Kelly, Elon Musk. He tweeted about a Bitcoin mining council and plans to address the environmental impact of cryptocurrency mining. That's boosting some morale around cryptocurrencies this week. Musk, though, denying that he has influence over the crypto markets and Dogecoin in particular. He responded to a tweet calling him the Doge CEO. He says, quote, please note Dogecoin has no formal organization and no one reports to me. So my ability to take action is limited. Kelly, though, some on Reddit disagree with that based on uh, how much crypto has moved on his tweets recently. Back you know, to you. I want to just go back to the GameStop thing for a second. It's really interesting to watch them reinvent themselves, boosted by the equity that they're getting um, from a lot of the retail public. The NFT move is an interesting one. What about AMC, though? I mean, it, it would seem to me that the simplest explanation that ties this all together is something like, you know, liquidity-driven or cash-driven or stimulus or interest-driven. And it, it's odd that it would come right as we're about to go into Memorial Day weekend when the economy na- nationwide feels like it's about to open up and kind of put an end to the whole pandemic-era-fueled trading frenzy. It's interesting. These two companies are so different, yet they do sort of trade in tandem. They're seen as sort of the the Reddit favorites. And it is really divorced in some ways from fundamentals. I think a lot of folks on Reddit are looking more at mentions and sort of the momentum there than they are at any of the fundamentals. I think something even like the NFT mention, they really just put up a new website. There's almost no detail on there. I think folks are really trying to jump on some of these hype trains versus looking at the fundamentals. I'm sure there are some analysts that thought it was oversold and got back in. Yeah. But for the most part, it does seem to be more of a momentum trade. Although, as I reflect on it, I think, well, what do both of these names have in common? I mean, they do benefit from foot traffic, right? So AMC, if they were able to make it through the pandemic, again, helped by the equity or a debt, I can't remember what it was that they raised, GameStop, you know, people, even the physical stores, you're starting to see people go back into malls. So maybe they're just classic reopening plays and the yeah. retail traders are way ahead of it. And the nostalgia aspect, I think people think about GameStop and AMC as things they really, you know, if it's the sort of buy what you know mentality, uh, folks might say, oh, well, exactly. Things are reopening. I'd like to go back to a movie theater. So why not get in and see this as a reopening trade? I think there is definitely an aspect of that. Those week to date gains are pretty amazing. I think you said in the range of 40 to 50 percent. Kate, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Appreciate it. Our Kate Rooney. It's been a volatile few weeks for crypto as well. Take Bitcoin rebounding today, like we mentioned, but it's still down about 30 percent in the past month. What if you want to invest in crypto, but in a less volatile way? Our next guest initiated coverage of Marathon Digital today. They are a digital asset miner. They give you exposure to Bitcoin without having to hold Bitcoin directly. And joining me now is the analyst behind this call, Lucas Pipes of B. Riley Securities. Lucas, it's great to have you. Tell me about Marathon Digital and how much upside you see. Yeah, th- thank you, Kelly, for, uh, for having me. It's great, great to be on the show. And, and I would say Marathon is really a unique company because uh, they're generating really attractive returns in this and, and lower BTC price environment. My background as an analyst is in, is in value investing. When I just listened here to the show, um, there was a lot of talk about momentum, et cetera. I, I would describe this as something different. Uh, there's a market price 
for Bitcoin today, nearly $40,000. And at that price, I see Marathon earning about 179% IRR on every incremental rig that they're deploying in the market. That's, that's, a, that's a very attractive return on capital, and they're going to scale very quickly uh, here, here over the next couple of quarters. And I think that makes us a really, uh, wow. really opportunity. And I love that you say, look, I'm a value investor and I'm coming at this from kind of an IRR point of view, which is a different case than we've heard uh, for others. I think a lot of maybe traditional value investors or investors of any kind have to wrap their heads around the fact they're fundamentally betting on a currency that didn't exist 10 years ago on the notion mm-hmm. that it's only going to have a fixed supply and so forth. So let's just put mm-hmm. all that to the side and say, OK, given all of that, um, tell me about what they're doing to bring down the economics or to improve the economics and bring down the breakeven price for Bitcoin mining, because that's what you're betting on here. And if I'm right, some of what I've read about their break-even costs are way below where a Bitcoin is trading today. Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely right. And, and the, the way I would describe this business, it's, it's a business of economies of scale. You, you need to compete on a, on a couple of different uh, levels. First, there's, there's the cost of power. No, no question about it. It's, it's your number one input. You need to get low, low uh, power, power prices. And Marathon has an arrangement up uh, in, in Montana. They made an announcement on Monday that I think is really meaningful. We'll probably get more details about that. About uh, it's about transitioning um, their their rigs rigs coming in in the future in the quarters to come down to Texas uh, again at a very attractive uh, power rate that's uh, less than five cents per uh, per kilowatt hour. But then uh, power is really important. We've, we've been talking a lot about. Um, that the need for miners to compete on power prices, but I think that only takes you so far. You, you have to compete, I believe, on two other important metrics. One, that's the acquisition cost of the mining rigs. That's a really competitive market. True. It's very difficult to get mining rigs today. It's The retail market is shut out. And um, Marathon has uh, ordered uh, a large supply. It's coming forth, as I noted. The returns on those miners are very attractive. But, but, you know, you need to be in that market and you need to be able to purchase and scale uh, to, to get the right price. So that, that's, a, that's a key value driver. And then the other, the other important aspect that I think um, Marathon and, and other institution miners can compete on is, is ESG, right? We've, we've heard a lot Ex- about that. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So at a time when Elon Musk is tweeting about his environmental concerns with uh, crypto, when the public is, especially the younger public, where their ESG might be very important to them, they're starting to realize the huge environmental footprint of this. We're talking about using power plants and all the rest of it. Tell me how you think a company like Marathon can navigate the ESG concerns. Yeah, so so it's it as you know, it's it's so important. It's it's really critical, and I think most importantly, the companies understand it. Uh, they, they they really understand that this is this is something that public is paying a lot of attention to you. And, and I would say ESG has three letters, ESG. I would say they're, they're doing a good job already on the S. I think they're already doing a very good job on the G. And on the E, I think we're going to see a lot of improvement. And I think we're also going to see a lot more standardization across um, across the industry. Where, where are we today? And then where do we want to go? Mm-hmm. The announcement that Marathon made on Monday was um, noting a, a target of 70% coming from carbon-free sources in terms of uh, power input. So, so clearly putting targets out there and then uh, investors. Uh, right. 
and Marathon Digital is up about 12 percent today. Uh, we'll talk more about the correlation with Bitcoin, but again, a really intriguing way to play the crypto boom without owning crypto directly, especially for people who have tax and regulatory concerns and all the rest of it. Lucas, thanks for your time today. Hope Thank to you. check back in soon. Lucas Pipes of B. Riley. Let's turn to the results of the five-year bond auction just went off top of the hour. Rick Santelli here, and rates have been coming down this week, Rick. Yes, you know, and that's interesting, Kelly, because that's called a lack of a concession. Concession, when you sell off, if you're looking to buy in an auction, you think, well, wow, it's sold off, maybe a good time to buy. So it's been doing the opposite. It's been rallying. As a matter of fact, if we have a chart real quickly, we closed at the lowest yield, the highest price in fives since early March. But that didn't matter. Sometimes it's better to buy something that you believe is turned and will continue to go up because this auction was solid. A minus, and it was 61 billion five-year notes. The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.788, a bit below the when issued market of 79 basis points yield trading. That's a good thing. Look at the metric, so hot. 2.49, bid to cover the best in September of 20. If you look at the indirects, we all look at that. Foreign buyers, it was strong for a change. 64.4, the best since August of 20. If we look at directs like mutual funds, pension funds, 14.9, basically at the 10 auction average. And dealers only take 20.8. The smaller the number, the better. That's like the leftovers. The best, the smallest amounts in September of 20. So, all in all, the 61 billion fives moved out the door. One word of caution, the pre-COVID, this was a $40 billion auction. So the size keeps getting bigger. Kelly? Rick, this is totally fascinating. I want to make sure everyone's connecting the dots here. So we have more inflationary concerns than ever showing up among the retail public, corporate America, this huge fight about whether it's transitory or not. Bigger five-year auctions than ever, basically, because of all of this debt that's been issued. And you're telling me demand was so strong that this was basically an A auction. In other words, for everything that you hear out there, these major, major investors are rushing in to buy five-year bonds here. That, to me, says they're not really worried about them losing value because of inflation. Or, or they believe they can trade between the raindrops, that between now and inflation data picks up, that they'll be able to liquidate at a better price, looking for the current rally to potentially continue. And do remember... Tomorrow, if you're looking at inflation, tomorrow's personal consumption expenditure, yes. a component of GDP, that's going to be important. Right. They, and they want to get in front of that train. I mean, it's really fascinating. You, you throw everything at them and they're they're willing to hoover it up. All right, Rick, thank you for bringing that to us. We'll continue to follow that story. Rick Santelli. Coming up, forget inflation. That's what we've just been talking about. The big bank CEOs all share a common concern. It's not that. We'll tell you from their prepared testimony on the Hill today what it is and what it means for the industry right after this. Don't go anywhere. Plus, it's official. MGM is buying Amazon Studios for roughly eight and a half billion dollars. It's boldest move yet into the entertainment space. Are they overpaying and does it matter? Amazon also reportedly weighing a push into physical pharmacies. It's sending shares of CVS, Walgreens and Rite Aid lower today. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. The nation's top bank CEOs are testifying before the Senate Banking Committee today. A common concern from their opening remarks is the crypto market. They're facing pressure from regulators scrutinizing the massive risk inherent to cryptos and from customers who want a piece of this potentially massive reward. It's all as hundreds of smaller banks are already racing to meet client crypto demand. Here to talk more about it is Anton Schutz. He is president and chief investment officer of Menden Capital Advisors. Anton, it's great to see you again. Let me just start with your reaction to these big bank CEOs on the Hill today, causing barely a ripple in the public consciousness (laughs) and, and kind of begging, but also warning about access to crypto. What does that tell you as an investor? Well, I think, First of all, it, it says that the banks are in a pretty good place and that they are not uh, the poster child of any problems out there. Um, so I think that, that the fact that, that the hearings went as well as they did, I think, just takes pressure off and lets them conduct business. And they were actually part of the solution, not part of the problem in terms of, you know, speeding money to small businesses. Um, you know, in terms of the crypto space, that's a that's a really challenging question. And. I, I think that at the end of the day, digital currencies are going to be really, really important. And, and some of the smaller banks, like a Signature Bank or Silvergate, have you know got a big leg up in providing access. The bigger banks have been more cautious and more careful. There's lots of ways to do this here, though. And I think the stable coin is probably one of the best ways to do it. It's not mm-hmm. a trading vehicle. <laughs> it's a payments vehicle. And you know I think that's a great tool for payments. If you start going towards crypto, it's a great tool for anonymity. And I'm not sure the the regulators are as big a fan of it. But yet all this stuff is part of the payment system. It's going to move. And you have to be part of that system. Uh, it's just a question of do you want to lend on it? Sure. And I want to ask you about your recommendation specifically. Before I do, though, one more big picture uh, concern, as Wilfred Frost outlined this morning, a lot of the biggest, so to speak, banks by market cap these days are fintech players who are obviously eyeing the bank's traditional turf. Crypto seems to be one way in which this war is playing out. How much of a competitive threat, how much market share do either the big banks or maybe the smaller players stand to lose from the rise of fintech? Well, I've uh, worked a lot with fintech, and I think banks and fintechs will be great partners in the future. And I think Triple P is a really great example of that, how banks work with some of the fintechs, like enumerated, to really help facilitate getting that process accomplished. Um, if you look at the other players that are part of the payment systems, they're more of a threat on payments than just in fintech, right? They're trying to dominate the payment rails. And I think the difference is that, that banks, you know, really are FDIC insured and the fintechs are not. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to that difference. And right yeah. now, nobody can see the difference, but it's real. Anton, stay right there. We have some breaking news, uh, if you will, for just a moment. It's breaking news from the ExxonMobil shareholder meeting, and it's back to a battle with that activist firm, Engine One. Leslie Picker, what's the latest? Hey, Kelly. So this was a very fascinating proxy fight. It was seen as a long shot 
for engine number one from the get-go. But as of right now, it appears that they have elected two, shareholders have elected two of the dissidents' candidates for that board. And one other candidate is still too close to call at this point in time. Uh, the shareholders have decided to elect Gregory Goff to the board and Kaiza Hietala as well, uh, both of whom have uh, energy experience, Goff uh, in the petroleum refining and marketing side of things. Uh, and Kaiza uh, Hiatala is more experienced in the renewable side of things. Now, the candidate that's still too close to call, Alexander Karsner, uh, who was the senior strategist at X, which was formerly Google X. But nonetheless, this is a tremendous uh, story right now, considering that engine number one had just 0.02 percent of this company. They own 0.02%, a very, very small shareholder in Exxon, which was once the largest company in the world. Uh, And here you have uh, what many believe to be in in kind of a David and Goliath situation, an upset uh, for a meeting that began at 10.30 Eastern time this morning. It was delayed uh, and then, you know, resumed. And there was a very long Q&A section. um, And then the polls finally closed. And those are the candidates that have been nominated. And we will follow that one that's also too close to call, Kelly. Yep, it's definitely putting a lot of corporate America on notice if they had previously ignored uh, these players. Once you get institutional backing, you can turn a vote like that. Leslie, thank you. Uh, Anton Schutz, I would just want to turn back to you and before we go button up this discussion, not unrelated maybe to, uh, to Exxon, but I, I won't belabor the point. Let's talk about where you would have people invest these days. We've been bullish on regional banks for a long, long time. Financials are off to a great start this year. So is energy, which is why I kind of mention it. But where do you think people should uh, invest their their dollars? Well, I continue to believe that there's a lot of growth um, in the South and Southwest. So, yeah, energy. Uh, so Texas is continues to be a good place to invest. Um, but you have companies like First Horizon that span that entire, you know, Southeast and Texas marketplace. And it trades at a you know nice several multiple discount to the rest of the group, has really good uh, conservative cost assumptions, and is being very conservative with its cash. And what that means is there's a lot of cash out there to lend when the demand gets big enough. And that'll you know really increase earnings very quickly. They're not buying securities because right now with rates potentially rising, you know, they're, they're saving that powder to lend. And I think that the earnings estimates are too low for the entire group uh, if we get loan demand in the back half of the year. And that would be a good story both for those investors, yes. maybe for the whole economy. Anton, thanks for your time and patience today. Appreciate you joining us. Mm-hmm. Anton Schutz of Menden Capital. Coming up, Republicans are trying to capitalize on inflation fears. A look at who's proposing what and whether it's a winning strategy. As we head to break, a reminder that we are wrapping up Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We've been spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and reporters. Here's Fast Money Editor-in-Chief Stephanie Mena. As a child of immigrants from two different Asian cultures who grew up in a predominantly white community, I think I developed a sense of empathy for others who felt like they were outsiders or didn't quite fit in. And these days, empathy is actually considered a really valuable leadership trait. And so I try to tap into empathy as a tool for building a cohesive and kind culture and team. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... 
Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a quick check on markets. Dow is up about 100 points at the session highs. We're only up 61 right now. It's the underperformer today as well. The S&P is up a quarter percent. The Nasdaq is up six-tenths of a percent. And it's uh, kind of going the other way in terms of monthly performance, though. The Nasdaq might actually break its longest monthly winning streak in over two years. It's about to close out its worst month since October. So a little bit of a bounce again just this week as we kind of uh, look to button that up. Some of the movers this hour include Ford on pace for its best month since 2011 as they hold their first investor day under CEO Jim Farley. Stock is up nearly 8% today. Look, it's up nearly 20% this month. And Ford is saying it expects electric vehicles to make up 40% of global sales by 2030. It's increasing its investment in EVs to more than $30 billion through 2025. Speaking of EVs, several of those stocks are also moving higher on this news today. Lee Auto up 13.5%. Quantum up 11 Workhorse up 12 You can see why everyone's saying kind of the meme and momentum stocks are back today. Even Lordstown up 6%, back near 10 bucks a share. And Peloton is higher after a new survey from Wedbush shows only 4% of Tread Plus owners plan to return that machine after the company's recall. Only 4%. The stock is on pace for its first monthly gain since December. Peton up nearly 9% today. Amazon has made it official with MGM. The Uber CEO is Uber unhappy and FedEx is falling behind. It's all coming up at rapid fire right after this quick break. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Joining me to break down the headlines are Bob Bassani, Julia Borston, and Casey Newton. He's platformer editor and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, everybody. Our first topic is Amazon and MGM signing that agreement for the tech giant to acquire it and the library for $8.5 billion, Amazon's most ambitious move yet in entertainment. Just moments ago, during Amazon's annual shareholder meeting, outgoing CEO Jeff Bezos highlighting MGM's vast content catalog catalog, saying his company can help reimagine it for the 21st century, Julia. He also said Andy Jassy will take over as Amazon CEO on July 5th. Um, Reinventing it for the 21st century. I wonder what that's going to look like. Well, what that means is that it's not just about the library. The library is the catalog of 4,000 movies, 17,000 TV shows that are going to be sitting there for people to go watch um, when they've already watched all the new original exclusive content. And there's a sort of perception in Hollywood that new movies, new TV shows, that's what get people to join a service. And then they stick around and watch all the library content later. And I think what that comment from Bezos indicates is that he's really interested in taking these properties such as Pink Panther or Legally Blonde, not to mention, of course, uh, James Bond, which we love to talk about, but taking those brands and reinventing them with maybe a, a modern, fresh take and creating that new original exclusive content, which is the most appealing stuff for, for consumers. Casey, what would you add? I would look at this in the context of retention, right? The the big advantage that this gives Amazon is now when it uh, comes for your prime renewal, you have one fewer reason to churn, right? Maybe there's a new Bond movie coming out or maybe they're rebooting the Pink Panther. So my <laughs> guess is that Amazon is looking at this as a way to keep those prime subscribers from uh, churning. Bob? 
Yeah, this is a battle for global streaming supremacy. Uh, you've got Amazon competing against Netflix. Netflix is one. Amazon is is number two. But Bezos always talks about that flywheel effect, the fact that you've got all of these 100 million plus subscribers sitting there and you want a new way to add value and to bring those people in. And that's a great way to do it here. I mean, well, I, I know they're spending $8 billion, but they, didn't they spend $11 billion last year overall? That doesn't seem like an outrageous amount to keep adding the value that they need to keep people like me on the site and buying new things. Julia, quick last word. What what do you think about a company like Viacom now? I mean, even Discovery, the combined Discovery Warner company, we heard shareholder Bill Smead say he thinks that becomes a really attractive acquisition target down the road. Well, yeah, so there's been some speculation that that combined company would be a potential acquisition target, maybe even for the likes of CNBC's parent company, NBC Universal. Viacom CBS is definitely in the category of companies that would be prime acquisition targets. But, you know, Kelly, that is entirely up to Sherry Redstone because she has the voting control over that company. So we'll see whether she's up for it or not. And this seems to be a case of the longer you wait, the more more valuable you might get, depending on how everyone's uh, snapping up and creating scale. Let's talk about Uber. Its CEO is unhappy with customer service, blaming drivers for not coming back to work fast enough as travel snaps back. Dara Khazra Shahi venting frustrations at J.P. Morgan's tech conference yesterday, saying, quote, we're not happy with the ETAs and price levels we see, and that is something we're going to invest to improve on. Now, Uber's already announced a quarter billion dollar stimulus plan to get drivers back in their cars. Uber and Lyft both saw their U.S. driver rosters plummet 40 percent in Q1 before vaccination rates ramped up. Casey, how much work is he going to have to do here? I, I think he is going to have to do a lot of work. But I mean, look, he has a basic supply and demand problem, right? Most people are, or fewer people have been taking Ubers over the past year. I do think that they're going to start to creep back out there. But if Dara wants to get more drivers on the road, he's going to have to pay them. And they say that they are going to incentivize them. But look, we've seen this before, right? Uh, this is how uh, ride sharing platforms get drivers on the road. They pay them more than they were doing before. It's time to do it again. What about price, Bob? Because anecdotally, some Uber drivers that I no, are saying they were excited about the return of uh, surge pricing and some of those really lucrative times that it itself could ha- dr- help draw drivers back into the pool. But I'm not sure if the CEO is trying to say that he's focused on actually keeping price down to attract customers, which could maybe repel drivers. Yeah, I'm happy the drivers are happy. That that's good for them and good to make money. But the horror stories are true. Are true. I'm spending twenty to thirty dollars for Uber rides that are ten minutes for the last month or two. I mean, that's twice what it used to be easily. And I'm booking things where they pick me up at a certain time. And for the last couple of times, they haven't gotten there. They haven't gotten there within 20 minutes of actually setting it up that they were too busy or some excuse. So the horror stories are true. Look, here's the good news. This is all going to go away. We're not going to be sitting here. I doubt it. Seriously, in September saying there's no drivers around and we're paying $30 for a $10 ride. I think all of this will go away once you see people start coming back. And Uber is emblematic of the whole country. It's slowly getting back to work and it's just going to take a little time. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. But still, this summer could be interesting in terms of the pricing environment and the wait times still. And I know investors are getting impatient with that. All right, let's talk about FedEx. New data showing they're still struggling to deliver packages on time while rivals are picking up the pace. According to delivery tracker Convey, FedEx lagged UPS and the Postal Service by a wide margin last month. Its on-time delivery percentage was just 72 percent. UPS was 88 percent. The Postal Service was 89 percent. FedEx disagrees and says it doesn't endorse third-party data and that its average delivery time the past six months, Julia, was around two days. 
Well, look, FedEx's business has been booming. I believe in December, the company had its highest ever monthly revenue and operating profit. I think the, the thing for FedEx is that its reputation is everything. If you have to wonder whether a FedEx is going to show up on time, then it starts to undermine that real brand equity that FedEx has there. So I think that they want to make sure to tamp down on those reports saying it didn't come from them. But this is a company that has certainly benefited from the pandemic. And the, exactly the cascade of e-commerce, Casey, that it seems in the new normal is, uh, you know, we, we're going back and forth between the things like Clorox that are maybe facing that post-pandemic cliff and things like e-commerce that seem to be on more of a permanently higher plateau. That's right. And yet we also know that FedEx has historically underinvested in e-commerce support because the per package margins just aren't as good as its regular business. So this is a big opportunity for them to catch up and to catch this wave. It sounds like they're committed to, to doing it, but we'll see. Yeah. As we all watch the or delivery and arrival times on our packages. Uh, finally, the government is reportedly taking action to prevent another colonial pipeline cybersecurity mess. According to the journal, the Department of Homeland Security could release a pair of directives as soon as this week, one requiring pipeline operators to notify them when they're hacked, the other to designate an internal cybersecurity point person. It's the first step in a new push from the White House to protect our two and a half million miles of pipeline. But, Bob, the much bigger concern here, I mean, obviously it's about any national infrastructure like this, but all of corporate America is getting shook down for these ransoms with, with almost no recourse. I mean, when CNA is spending... 40 or 50 million dollars, right? This isn't just about the pipeline. It's, yeah. there's been, you know, they always say you should never pay a ransom. It just encourages the kidnappers. Well, we're, every, no one in the business world is, is not doing that. Everybody is paying up. And that's one of the reasons people think there's going to be a bigger crypto, crackdown on crypto coming because Bitcoin and crypto assets are kind of the, at the heart of it. Here's the problem I got. When I saw this, I said, wait a minute, they don't require them to tell them if they've been hacked before? There actually is not a requirement. It turns out there isn't. I was shocked to find this out. Now, apparently gas pipelines, there is requirements. But here, with the oil, they got somehow an exemption for, you think, this is a critical infrastructure for the United States. You think you should have that? I think so. And not only should you have it, there should be security requirements. Apparently, there aren't any. Well, this is a serious problem. I'm certainly glad something's happening now, but I can't believe it didn't exist before. Yeah. Good lobbying on the part of the oil industry. Casey? Look, I think that, that you're right that there is going to be a push here to uh, to, to crack down on, on crypto, uh, you know, maybe even make it illegal. But another proposal that I think we ought to consider is just making these payments illegal, right? The, the reason that the price of these ransoms keeps going up, as you note, is that people keep paying them. So I think we may want to look at some sort of uh, measures there that uh, maybe drive down, down that price. Uh, what would those measures, though, look like? How can you outlaw? I mean, the people who are doing this are breaking the law by doing it. So if you make a law against it, it's not going to stop them. Right. Well, I mean, I think the idea would be that if it's not legal to pay the ransom, but then we offer government support on the back end to, to fix these uh, the, these technical issues and yeah. work with companies to get them back up and running. Yeah. No, that's a fascinating point because you'd have to have tremendous capacity uh, to be able to do this. There's a lot of insurance products, obviously, that can yeah. can maybe step up here for for some of the private sector. Before we go, though, I, I just want to kind of throw this out to everybody. Bob, can we talk for a second about what just happened over at Exxon? Because they just lost two board seats uh, that the CEO had kind of personally staked 
uh, his reputation on. They were calling investors, uh, reportedly trying to get them to change their minds and support their slate of directors. But this tiny ESG-focused fund uh, was just able to get institutional backing and get two of its own candidates, maybe three, onto Exxon's board. What is, what is the significance of this moment? This is a very significant moment. This will be written about. This is historically important. This is either the most appalling intrusion into a company's business imaginable on one side, or it's about time something happened. I happen to be in the latter camp, not the former camp. They have been screaming at Exxon and and the entire energy industry for decades to upgrade itself, become a true energy company, not an oil company. Finally, some people have managed to force them to do that. You can say it's ESG, the moment has come, whatever you want. I think it's about time, and I think it's a very, very important moment. Julia, it's proxy season, and we're seeing all, you know, Amazon's having its meeting today, Facebook's having its meeting, and I was looking at kind of the coincidence of Facebook saying that all of its, uh, you know, Board members were reelected, shareholders voted, but we know that these companies have much more founder control. So, you know, you go back and think about corporate governance and a company like Facebook would be a prime target of ESG on the G front, except there's nothing they can do about it. Well, yes, I mean, it's funny when you have these these Facebook meetings, it's interesting to see what the proposals are, but you know what the outcome is going to be because you know that this is a company where the controlling share, the shares are controlled by Mark Zuckerberg. So certainly uh, not he's not unusual in that situation. And we've seen other companies follow in Facebook's footsteps. Um, but this is definitely a question for companies as they start to go public. How much is that going to be the case? And, you know, we saw with AT&T, they decided, and AT&T and Discovery, they decided that the com- combined company of WarnerMedia and Discovery, that was going to only have one class of shares. Um, so really interesting to see how some of these companies are handling this going forward. Yeah, because I definitely imagine Facebook to face similar kind of scrutiny down the road, minus the ability to maybe do anything about it. Casey, I'll, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, I, I think that the, the Mark Zuckerberg style, uh, you know, dual class stock ownership is honestly falling out of favor. I think people realize how unaccountable it has made him and Facebook to the world. So I just think we're going to see less of that in the but, future. But now, wait, I see this. Is, but I think the point is the opposite. Don't you think we'd see more of this? No shareholders are going, you know what, we're not going to own Facebook because of the governance structure. These are some of the most successful companies on the planet. They look at Exxon and they're probably going, we would never change the governance model. Right. And no, who can pressure them to do so? Well, I mean, the government's trying to break up Facebook right now. And you have governments all around the world that are coming down on them like a pile of bricks. And in part, it's because shareholders have no leverage. So I just think that that dynamic's going to continue to play out. Oh, they sort of trade the shareholder, you know, leverage for the, the government leverage. We'll see. That's an interesting point. That's why I love rapid fire. Thank you all today. Really appreciate it. Okay. Casey Newton, Julia Borston, and Bob Pisani. Coming up with graduation season underway, we're going to take a look at 529 plans and how to maximize your savings while avoiding some major mistakes. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. I want to get you a check on shares of ZipRecruiter. They just went public via direct listing today with an $18 reference price, and they opened up around 20 bucks. That's a 12.5% gain as they're currently around 2025. So again, a decent opening in what's been a more difficult IPO market the last week or two. Meanwhile, National 529 College Savings Day is Saturday. Didn't even know we had one, but it's graduation season. So of course, our Sharon Epperson is taking a look at some smart ways to tap these tax advantage accounts, Sharon, and especially to avoid some big-time money mistakes. Senior year! 
I can't believe it. For Patricia Roberts, her son Ben's graduation from Clark University in Massachusetts will mark two important milestones. We're going to be celebrating both his academic achievement and our achievement as a family in preparing for the cost of it. Roberts, author of Route 529, A Parent's Guide to Saving for College, was able to pay for those costs with Ben's merit scholarships and money she and her husband had put away in 529 plans, tax advantage savings accounts specifically for education. How does it feel to know that you are graduating debt-free from college? It feels amazing. In 2021, an individual can give up to $15,000 per beneficiary to a 529 plan without paying gift taxes. Every dollar helps. Saving $100 a month over 18 years can result in a balance of over $31,000. So how did you crack the code and figure out the best way to save in a 529 plan? As a family, we looked at our expenses and we realized how much we could save had an awful lot to do with what we were spending. We adjusted our lifestyle. Other families may be doing the same. Nationally, total 529 plan contributions have increased over 11% in the past year. During the pandemic, we couldn't travel, couldn't eat out a lot. That's a lot of savings as well that can be redeployed to goals. And education often comes to the forefront. After building up savings, financial advisor Lizetta Braxton says, make a plan for spending it. A lot of people are not aware that 529 plans could not only be used for college expenses, but also private school. As well as apprenticeships, technical schools, and graduate studies. But for most families, using 529 plans to pay for college is the ultimate goal. This is one of the proudest moments in my life that our child will graduate debt-free. Many families will have to use a mix, though, of income, savings, grants and scholarships, as well as loans to pay for college. You want to check out online savings calculators to help you figure out how much it will cost for four years of college, what your shortfall may be, and how much you would need to save or borrow to bridge that gap. And you can find out a lot more about 529 plans at cnbc.com slash invest in you, Kelly. Yeah, and Sharon, it's great to see you again. The cost is insane. Um, what are some ways to kind of maximize the 529 plan money, but if you have to take loans? Now, if you have to take loans, your goal should always be to try to minimize the amount of interest that you're paying. Federal loans generally have lower interest rates than private loans. And if you take out unsubsidized federal loans, some experts say that you may want to wait as long as you can to borrow that money since those loans start to accrue interest as soon as they're dispersed. And in that case, they say you may want to spend down your 529 plan money before you borrow. Also keep in mind, you can use 529 plan money to pay off up to $10,000 in qualified student loans. Now, there are conditions, so you need to be sure to double check your plan, but that's another benefit of 529 plan money that some people never realize. I didn't either, and your point about timing is a good one as well, to use the plan money so you can defer interest. Sharon, as always, thank you. Sharon Epperson with the latest for us. My pleasure. Still ahead, Republican Senator Rick Scott calling inflation a hidden tax on working Americans. The details about how the GOP is using inflation to take on Biden's agenda next. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Inflation is now turning into a political tactic on Capitol Hill, with Republicans using it to target President Biden's economic agenda. Elon Moy is here with the latest behind their strategy. Elon? 
Well, Kelly, Republicans are trying to drive home the message that inflation is a tax. It's already here. And it's the direct result of trillions of dollars in government spending. This is basically a tax on the poor. And I keep hearing from this, this administration, you know, we're not going to raise taxes on the middle class or the people that don't have money. Well, folks, it is hitting us right between the eyes. Now, Republicans see a political opening on this issue because it unifies their party and it divides the Democrats. The National Republican Congressional Committee blasted on email and social media today that inflation is back. And the group cited warnings from Larry Summers and Jason Furman, both former White House officials under President Obama, about the risk of rising prices. Now, to help lawmakers bone up on the data, the Republican Study Committee has been circulating a memo that includes a breakdown of CPI and stats on commodity prices. They believe these numbers show that the economy can't handle trillions more in spending on infrastructure. Kelly, the memo calls that proposal downright insane. Back over to you. So what is the White House response uh, as far so far? I mean, obviously, this is all going to play out as we follow the data. It's like tomorrow morning's PCE data release is like the most important event in the country, except it's probably mostly of interest, maybe to our viewers. <laughs> Well, that's just exactly it, Kelly. I mean, the White House argues that one month doesn't make a trend, that inflation is likely transitory, and that this bottom line underscores how difficult it is to forecast during the pandemic. The White House chief economic advisor, Cecilia Rouse, has said that, you know, look at the mask mandate. In just one night, you end up with an oversupply of masks and an undersupply of lipstick. And so, of course, that's going to create supply chain disruptions. So... Kind of thinking back to the whole Tea Party movement, which is probably the last time that we saw a populist response to fiscal plans result in a major change in government spending. I, you know, kind of feeling the mood there on Capitol Hill. I don't know if it's the Tea Party, if it's the debt issue per se, uh, which surprisingly hasn't seemed to rankle people so much, although it's all related. What should we anticipate in terms of how this might play out politically, especially within a year? We're going to be right in the thick of the midterm elections. Yeah, so Republicans are trying to find a way to hone their attack on the president's economic agenda because what they're finding is that just the numbers alone, just the massive spending alone, isn't generating that type of voter response that you'd seen before. President Trump changed the Republican Party. He was willing to deficit spend. He was willing to uh, spend government resources in order to get the programs that he wanted. And so maybe that's not resonating in the same way with their voters. Inflation, they feel, is a way to get at this because it hits you in the pocketbook. It's something a lot of people can understand each time that they go to the grocery store or go to the gas pump. And so that's why they're coalescing around this as the way to attack uh, Biden's economic proposals. Yeah, and one final theory that I've heard making the rounds is that some of the Republican base may be more animated by social issues than economic ones right now. I mean, obviously, inflation is getting everybody going, but the fiscal side of it, maybe it's just a different mood than it was a few years ago as they watch fights in the Supreme Court and elsewhere play out. Well, that's right. I mean, I've seen some Republican polling that shows a very low level of awareness that taxes are even part of President Biden's infrastructure plan. Um, so they're going to have to find another way to talk about this. And inflation is one of them. All right. Elon, thank you so much. Elon Moy bringing us up to speed. Before we go, here's a quick check on shares of Exxon. We're monitoring their shareholder meeting as an activist firm has won two board seats, a historic defeat for Exxon that many say could likely force it to reduce its focus on fossil fuels. The shares uh, actually are going near session highs right now. Maybe a little bit of sell the rumor by the fact. XOM up seven tenths of a percent. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. 
That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.